I am delighted to have our next guest on the podcast, who is a top performance nutritionist and he works with professional athletes. He currently works with the Bristol Bears Rugby Union and has previously worked with England Rugby and England Football. Ladies and gents, we've got Dr. James Morhan. Hello, good morning. How are we? Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's actually evening for me here, so opposite sides of the world. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on. I would love if we could just start, if you could just sort of give us a little bit of background of how you got to where you are in your career and um, yeah, how you got started really. Yeah, um, I'll try and keep it short. So 18 to 21, uh, snowboard instructor in Canada. Uh, had no ambition of going to university, if I'm completely honest. Uh, my main goal was learning how to snowboard properly and, and what the snow forecast was like and, and what time Apre Ski opened. And then 21, decided, that, you know, am, am I going to do this for the rest of my life? Am I going to be a season heir? Or is there something that I want to kind of dedicate a little bit more drive and motivation towards? And I quite often say this, and I said this to Daniel Davey recently on his podcast, that I, I genuinely believe 99% of people that work in sport are failed athletes because we've all got that drive and determination to be in the club, be working with the athletes. And I, I do wonder whether we all get that little bit of a fix by seeing the athletes that we work with compete at the weekend and me deep down, you know, I, I wish that was me playing professional rugby, but at 21, I, I decided that, okay, the career for me to work in sport then is, is sports science. That's what I kind of need to go study. So I then moved to Liverpool and I did my nine year journey in Liverpool. I spent a third of my life in, in a great city in the Northwest and completed my undergraduate in sport and exercise science, rolled straight onto a master's in sports physiology, and then was fortunate enough to have a, a co-funded PhD from the university, Liverpool John Moores, and a rugby league team at the side, Witness Vikings. After the first year of that, that transferred over to Warrington Wolves for two years. So during that three-year PhD, I had experience of two rugby league sides. Really lucky that all of my... Uh, studies and recruitment and participant was professional athletes at the time. I, I was balancing a blend of being a nutritionist in the club and then working in, on the PhD in the evenings and at the weekend. And then also managed to pick up a little bit of work with some professional boxers in and around Liverpool, which was great. PhD funding finished uh, four and a half years later. And then I needed a, my first real job at 27, I think I was. So I decided to apply for a role at England football with the FA. There was only one job at the time and I wasn't successful in that, that initial job. Dr. Chris Rosimus kind of beat me to that post and, and rightly he should have done, but they created a second role for me at the organization, which was amazing. So I then became Chris's assistant for four years. Um, incredible time, never worked kind of at an international level like that before. But we had two nutritionists looking after 500 athletes. We were spread thin, but it forced us to come up with strategic processes, strategies, curriculums, policy documents. And during that time, spent 18 months with the Lionesses, which was incredible, um, was, was part of kind of their development and growth into kind of the team that they are now. I left before they won the Euros, so that, that wasn't me. But, you know, it was a real privilege to be working for the country and supporting those girls because they were, they were brilliant and really enjoyed my time there. My passion deep down was rugby. 
So after four years, I explored the opportunity to get back into rugby and that's where a role at Bristol Bears was available and um, put my name in the hat for that, was successful with, with that. So I've now been at Bristol Bears as a lead nutritionist for three years. And during that time, I've also done 18 months with the Red Roses for the RFU, two Grand Slams and kind of a, a World Cup in New Zealand. And then I support professional boxers as well. So a couple of world champions and, and a few kind of junior bro- boxers, I, I would say. Do a little bit of work in motorsport with some drivers there and, and I run my own business. So I have a number of private clients. I run the Performance Nutrition Network, which is a community of nutritionists from all over the world. And I'm nearly finishing my second book. So that's a four minute, five minute introduction on into me really journey a long a long list of things and like just everything you're doing at the moment it's like pretty much at the very top level that there is and like to hear you talk about you know the very beginning of your journey where you didn't think that you'd go to university like what would you say to that kind of 18 year old guy or like for anyone listening you know if they are kind of in that position where they're like I don't know if I'm going to make anything of my life or if I can achieve you know, these goals, like what would you say to that kind of person if they're in that mindset? Yeah, it's probably uh, something that you hear quite often. For me, it was so true is like, what what is your passion? Like, what is the purpose of what you're trying to do? Um, and I know not everyone's a believer of like writing things down and, and kind of having a vision and a path, but it's certainly helped for me. And you know, I was quite vocal with my family and my friends actually at the time that, you know, my my goal is to work for England Rugby. That's what I want to do. And 21, yeah. it was a goal that was so far away. I was on the journey to becoming that nutritionist and that practitioner that could maybe get that job one day. And I was aware that it wasn't going to happen overnight. And there were certain stepping stones in my career that I had to achieve first to get that little bit closer. And that was an undergrads. Then it was a master's. Then it was for me, a PhD made sense at the time. Not everyone needs to do a PhD, but it, it helped me. And then it was just generating that credibility and, and the, the reliability and, and knowledge within sport that was going to allow me to get closer to that journey. So, or, or rather a destination. So I think for anyone that's kind of on the fence, it's, and I ask my mentees this all the time, like, where do you want to be in two years? Like, what is it? Do you want to run your own business? Do you want to be a podcast host? Do you want to work and own a coffee shop? Do you want to work for Arsenal Women's Football Club? What is it? If you could literally wave a wand and you're doing what you're doing in two years, what would that be? I think that's a really good starting point to figure out because in my opinion, like we're, we're all going through this journey of life Sometimes you can kind of spin around in circles if you don't really know where it is you're trying to get to. And, you know, a pilot never gets in a plane and doesn't know where he's flying. A Formula One driver doesn't get in a car and doesn't know where they're driving to. A rugby player doesn't start a pre-season and know what their goal is. So why is it any different for us? A business owner doesn't just start a business not knowing what they're trying to sell. Like they've clearly outlined, right, I'm yeah. old clothes. So I would start maybe by trying to move sky thinking where is it you want to get to and like did you have anyone with like negative reactions when you were at that point you're like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna work with england rugby or whatever it was you know 
I wouldn't say negative reactions. No, it, it, you know, telling my mum, dad, brothers, I, I think they they know how motivated I am to do things. So it was more like that's class, like that's your goal, like go and get it. And then at university and at Liverpool, John Moore's kind of, I was almost asking people, is this the right journey to go on to achieve that goal? And it just kind of made sense, like sports science, then get a master's, then become Senar registered. So like these are the things that recruitment teams look for in positions across sport. And so, yeah, I mean, there might've been people looking at thinking, like you're mental, like you're never going to get that, but why not? Like there's, there's other people out there that have had amazing careers that I respect that, you know, when you look at their journeys and paths, it's sometimes you just got to mirror what other people have done. Yeah, hundred percent. And like, just with working with top level athletes in terms of their nutrition, what would you say are like the main sort of differences between like an elite level athlete in comparison to someone that's maybe amateur or you know general population yeah it's a really good question this because i say this a lot to people in the community that the nutritional strategies that i will support the bristol bears rugby players with um, are very similar if not identical to what i would support the local rugby union team with who are amateur lad, they go out at the weekend, but they play rugby because they're both rugby players. That you've, you've just got one that's very talented and very skillful that will probably go and represent the country. And then you've got one that plays rugby as a, as a hobby and, and to be in and around his mates. But the underlying principles of the research are the same. So... Mm-hmm. Quite often what I'm telling the boys at Bristol Bears, I might also tell, you know, my brother who plays rugby at the weekend, I'm like, mate, if you want to fuel properly, you've got to hit six grand per kilo of carbs. So yeah. the difference then is, is of course, the ability for the athletes because a rugby player is in an environment where the, the squad are doing it and, and we put everything in place to allow them to achieve that. And that's where you start bringing in the whole behavioral change and, you know, the combi model and the behavioral will uh, and it becomes more difficult for the amateur athlete because it's not really their priority like they play rugby yeah. they enjoy doing it whereas a rugby player this is his career i would say actually the the nutritional strategies are quite similar on a whole yes at the elite level you begin to dial in a little bit tighter on specific individual context driven strategies i.e we've just had an acl rupture folks going in for surgery right, that is very specific, or we've just had somebody concussed, they can't train for the next seven days, or we get to adjust energy intake because expenditures dropped. That's where you get into the specifics of it at the elite level. Yeah, and I think a lot of the time, like even with elite athletes, it's just focusing on the basics, even when they're like at a very top level. And I think a lot of the time, you'd be a little bit surprised by things that athletes have been told that maybe not they're not correct and like what would be kind of the main things that you'd see among athletes that are kind of like they're missing out or that they're not really getting right yeah you talk about something there at the start um, doing the basics right and at the fa at the time bryce kavanagh who was the head of performance he 
And, and, and as a department, really, we used to talk about brilliant basics in the basics very, very well. And if you look at the bottom of the pyramids, you kind of have exercise and movement, nutrition and kind of energy intake and food, and then rest, sleep and recovery. They're, they're always at the baseline of the pyramid. And as you go up that pyramid, like on the top is probably something like Tonga Alley right now. Something that's really popular, it's really hot, everyone's talking about it. But actually the science behind it is pretty limited with, with our population mm -hmm. that we work with. Um, actually, in the, the basics done brilliantly is where you can develop people very well. Um, and, and what I see sometimes is the athletes focusing on gimmicky style product. product. It's got great marketing behind it. And on the face of it, according to Instagram, it does amazing things. And according to certain YouTube videos and, and hosts of YouTube videos, it does amazing things. But actually, when you dive into the literature of it and the scientific evidence, it's like there's not actually anything that supports this with human models yet. But actually, a lot of the research on this is done with rats. It's done with rodents. So you can take it, but I think you'd be better off focusing on the bottom of the pillar. Like, are, we, are we actually getting enough sleep at night? And is that maybe the driver that you feel like that your testosterone levels are quite low at the moment because you're just not resting and recovering properly? So that's an area that I see popular at the moment. And then also I've had some really you know, deep and good, meaningful conversations with some very good athletes around kind of the cheat meal style of stuff. So, um, guys, you know, in our game are physically abused is probably a, a, a good term to summarize because you've got 90 kilos of body mass running into three times 90 kilos defenders multiple times a game you've got exercise induced muscle damage you've got impact induced muscle damage you've got a body at the end of a rugby game that is highly inflamed with lots of muscle damage being circulated and some of the players have been told previously well this is the this is the time where you have a cheap this is where you can go out and basically eat what you want and what I've started to educate the boys on is that normally the cheat meal food belongs to a group four on the Nova scale and the Nova scale is ultra processed foods. So it's fries, it's burgers, it's processed cheese, it's milkshakes, it's all of these foods that actually are pro-inflammatory. So you end, you end a game and the analogy that I say to the boys is it's like having a Formula One crash. Like you've hit the barriers, you've dismantled the body. And what you want to feed your body is foods that are going to promote the inflammation. Whereas actually, this is probably the meal that needs to be so good that it helps recover, repair, reduce the inflammation as quick as possible. And there's kind of a catch-22 at rugby because if they have a great win, the social side of having a beer together is massive. And, yeah. and I'm never going to stand in the way of that because it's not my decision to make. But what I would encourage the boys is like, before we have a beer, it would be like, let's nail like genuine good nutrition. It's like, let's get all of that in so that the body can start to repair and recover. And then if you want to have a bottle of beer together, like cheers, like well done, congratulations on the win. And I've had anecdotal, you know, case studies at Bristol Bears where I've worked on that recovery meal with players and 
literally it's it's night and day. Like two players have said to me, like I've never felt so good on a Saturday morning, Sunday before. And what I've changed is going from a five guys to having like a genuine recovery meal. And then I, what I've always said to them is like, have the five guys on like a Tuesday night, like keep it away from the game. Protect the 96 hours around the game and just yeah. have that cheat meal somewhere else with the missus. Like if that's your thing with your partner, you go out for dinner. Then yeah. it. So, that, so that's an area that I've been, yeah, is kind of a, a, a meal in the week where people still believe they can eat what they want, but actually it's probably negating, you know, what's happening after a game in terms of inflammation. Yeah, and I think that's one thing as well, like with with athletes, it's like there's a lot of beliefs there that have been kind of ingrained in them for years and years. And it's very hard to kind of get through to someone that this is what the evidence base is telling us. So this belief that you've had for years is maybe not the best approach and you maybe have to change that habit that you've had for maybe like 15 years or whatever. Like, how do you go about changing that with you know with players that are so ingrained in their habits because that's one thing that is a coach kind of struggle with yeah yeah well james clear and his book atomic habits is probably everyone needs to read because i think once you understand how a habit has been built you can then understand how to potentially break the habit or at least tweak it or revise it for the better so that's really important and then the other thing that i speak about in one and I can't take credit for this because Graham Close told me it. It's it's building trust with your athlete, and that is so important in sport because you, you've nailed it. Like if somebody's got a strategy that they've done for ten years of their career, and they've still become a pro rugby player, like why should they change it? And I'll say to those guys that, like I agree with you, but imagine how much better you could have been. If you actually fueled properly or if you recovered properly or if you consumed enough energy that allowed you to put the muscle mass on that you're trying to achieve during a preseason. And that trust is massive and it's defined by Graham told me this as on the top of it, you have credibility plus reliability plus intimacy. And you would score those three variables out of 10. So how credible are you? How reliable are you as a practitioner? And how intimacy are you in terms of if somebody's just lost their dad, like you're not trying to chuck a protein shake down his throat, like some, something that you might consider is now's not the time for that. What I am going to do is an arm around him and say, look, if, if it's you need from me, or can we, can we send some meals to the house so that you haven't got to think about nutrition? That's being intimate. And then you divide that by self-ego or self-interest and when practitioners start out in their career, me being that person, when I was at Witness, it was all about wearing the tracksuit and wearing the badge. And, and my ego was through the roof. I wasn't very credible because I'd just finished the master's. So I, I was on that journey, but I wasn't a professor. Reliability, I was okay with. And then in intimacy, I've actually been okay with my whole career. I now reflect back to where I am at Bristol Bears, and I'd like to think, the credibility has risen a little bit because I've now got a PhD. I've got some publications in rugby. I'm still not anywhere near some of the world leaders, but I've got that. I've got that credibility in rugby. Um, reliable, yeah, I'm reliable. I, I could probably always get better. And then your yeah, intimacy is for me. It, it is really high because, like, I lost my dad five years ago. I know what it feels like. We've had a few of them at the club. 
So I've got the ability to connect with those players. And my ego at Bristol Bears, like it isn't about me anymore in my career. It's about supporting the player to become the best athlete they can. So I think when you get that across to an athlete in a conversation, quite quickly they realize, okay, this guy's a good guy. Like I trust him. I feel like I'm connecting with him. And he's got credibility because he's got track record of working with players. He's got his own publications. He's happy to share the science with me. I think that's where you can get the buy-in. So with the two people that spoke about the post-match meal, it was like, look, I'm not in this club because I want to shout that I work at Bristol Bears. I'm in this club to make you a better player. So my job is to give you the evidence and give you the science. If you want to buy into it, that's your call ultimately, but I'll give you everything you need to make a decision yourself. And that's, that's the kind of approach that I'll have with athletes now. Yeah, no, I think that makes so much sense. And like, I think a huge part of it with working with people is just having that relationship. Like if you don't get on with someone, they can have all the qualifications in the world, but like you're, you might not listen to them. Yeah. And it's interesting what you said there about credibility. And I think honestly, the most highly qualified people are the people that are like, oh, I'm, I'm not the best. You know, I'm not a professor, even though you had like your master's and everything done. So I think one thing that, like I wanted to kind of get across on podcasts is how do people differentiate between information that is reliable versus information that could be absolute BS? Because I think it's really hard, you know, on social media and everything like that, even for athletes, like what advice do they take versus what is not credible? Oh, what a question. I think this is the the benefit and the, the negativity of information being able to be spread literally within milliseconds. And like, I, I have a thing at work that I've held close to me in terms of evidence defeats doubt. And I think that's the crucial bit here. It's not seeing an Instagram post come up says XYZ mushroom gives you the best testosterone levels you've ever had. And then just thinking, right, okay, I need to take XY mushroom. It's looking at the literature. I mean, what I quite often do is I'll email the company and I'll say, could you send me the the papers that you're referencing yeah. for the things that you're putting on the labels? And, you know, I, it doesn't take long really to like actually look at some of the, the methods that are being used. And then, you know, I, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a player at, at work and, and said, it is informed sport and there is a batch certification for it. But at the moment... The data has been done in rats and I don't think you're a rat. I think you're a human and you're a rugby player at the club. So that's not me saying that it might give beneficial outcomes. At the moment, the peer-reviewed publications in, in this particular area, there isn't any human studies. So like, that's ultimately your call as to whether you want to take it. I can't make that decision for you. I can just give you the advice. The CBD is a great one at the moment sharing with the players that, you know, yes, there's tested supplements and yes, anecdotally, people are reporting positive outcomes, but it's still a very sensitive area because you've still got loads of companies that are testing their products properly. You've still got loads of companies that are faking certificates and are copying the, the Inform Sport logo onto their products. So You've just got to be really super careful out there. And ultimately the liability is on you, like strict liability. What you put in your mouth is your call. 
So I just, I'll try and educate the boys in that area just to make sure that they're fully aware of like the repercussions of things. Yeah. Um, I think to try and distill the information online, it's difficult for the athlete because it's our job as nutritionists or dietitians. Like we're the ones that read this and we're the yeah. ones that enjoy reading it. And the rugby players are going to sit there on PubMed every night and look at the, li the literature, like fundamentally they're not. So it is our job to be armed with that information. And, you know, I've, I've seen players take certain things and I'll just have a quiet conversation with on their own, not in front of anyone else. And it's just like, look, just for awareness, like I've seen it, I've had a look online, I can see that it's batch certified, but just the evidence isn't quite there. And we've had similar ones with like stuff that I've had to check on global drug and I've seen it and I've just sent them the certificate and just said, look, saw that you were taking this. I've checked it on global drug. It, it is all fine to take Here, Here's your certificate. Here's a PDF so that you've got it documented. That for me is enough. So. Yeah, difficult though, because, you know, there's some really good people to follow online and then there's some quite questionable people to follow online, but I think we've just got to be super aware of it all. And if people are talking about supplements and nutrition, like that's great for us because it opens up a conversation. Yeah. And I think as well, like with all these supplements, I think actually Graham Poole said this, it's like, if it's legal, it probably doesn't work. And if it works, it's probably not legal with you know, exceptions like things like creatine and things like that. Yeah. You know, if someone is taking a supplement, whatever it is, and they do find that they are getting a benefit, whether it's placebo or not, would you say if you're getting that placebo effect that you should keep, you know, taking that? Or is it worth just kind of maybe focusing on the basics, like the pillars that we talked about earlier? Yeah, well, we would always try and focus on like that group A of supplements, certainly like the yeah. IOC kind of supplement category, uh, classification because they're the one with like ample ample research and i i wrote an article for yeah. nutrition editor graham about supplements for rugby players and really if you focused on whey protein creatine and caffeine look and and you did them properly and used them properly then you're gonna gonna be in a great position and it was yeah. amazing actually when i presented to the red roses for the first time about caffeine because a lot of them just saw it as coffee and they didn't realize that caffeine could be used as an ergogenic aid to help combat vegan yeah. games. So we had a, a great presentation on that, super discussion. But yeah, if someone's like, I'm taking uh, this supplement and I feel great off of it, I'm like, that's fine. If you got the batch certification, like if you physically got that and it matches up to the products you've got, you understand that the liability is on you as an athlete, not me, like you. And you're happy that whether it's a placebo or not, you're still happy to allocate budget or spends to that out of your own money. Then that's your call. What I will tell you is that let's say it's a sleep supplement. What I can tell you is that these things do help and are studied in humans. For example, making sure you've got blackout curtains. Like that would be a really good starting point, making sure you put your phone away an hour before bed. Like we know that that's good. So I'd always try and embellish what they're doing with other easy strategies that I know would probably be much better. But if he takes one or two of them and implements it, then it's a massive win. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of a rich conversation with an athlete. And I have got that relationship with the majority of the Bears players now where they will come to me and they'll say, mate, what do you think of this? 
And if I don't know the answer, I'll be like, never heard of that. Give me an hour and I'll go and do some reading and I'll come back to you. Yeah, I think that's a really good um, strategy because people know if you're like trying to make up something on the spot. And I think as well, a lot of the time with the advice, people are asking for like these kind of the product that has like the good marketing and stuff. When in reality, it's like get buy an alarm clock so that your phone isn't in the room. And like yeah. those kind of simple things like the blackout curtains, like that's what's actually going to make the difference. Not like that expensive supplement that you saw on Instagram, you know, and just like in terms of those questions that athletes have is there anything that you would kind of give athletes like or whoever you're working with as guidelines to kind of be like look stay away from this or you know give them kind of resources like oh yeah this is a really good resource go for that because like I often feel like with clients I'll be like look don't watch don't watch the documentaries on food or like just take it with a pinch of salt to things like that but like in terms of resources like what would you direct your clients towards yeah, with, with the athletes, I'll always say to them, come and speak to me. Like, let, let's have a copy and let's have a discussion about it. Like, that for me would be the first point of call. We're always saying to them, everything in the building that we provide is batch certified. I have all of the batch certificates stored, documented in a folder. And, and that's our stance. We share a presentation on CBD when it was kind of hot and it was like the hot thing in the, on the market. And basically said, look, our club stance is that we do not uh, condone anyone taking it. Like, we don't want anyone taking it because there are risks. And everyone was in that presentation. If they then go and take it, that's, that's their call. You sat through a presentation where we told you not to take it. So conversation with me, make sure that it's registered with a third-party testing. So that's NSF, Cologne List, you know, Inform Sport. But importantly, make sure that they've got that batch certification. And then I don't really suggest they go and watch kind of any YouTube or things like that. What I have started showing people is like examine.com. So good websites like that where they could quickly search, you know, creatine in rugby and would pull up the research and the literature so that they can have a quick look. But I will always try and get them to come and talk to me. And then I'll have no problems sending them a, a PubMed link with an article, but then importantly, just voice noting a f with a follow-up to say, hey, this is the paper that I'm referring to. If you just have a look at the abstract, it's a 90-second read. You can see here, this is the reason why it doesn't work because it was done in rodents. And yeah, <laughs> and sometimes that's enough where they go, yeah, all right, fair enough. Yeah. I think as well, just getting people to be critical of the information they're hearing, like I had a friend actually and she said she was talking to someone and they said, oh, like research shows that this is X, Y, Z, that carbs are bad for you or whatever. But if she had just asked, you know, obviously she didn't, a regular person doesn't know to ask these things. But if you'd asked, what was the study and how many participants were in it? And what were the outcome measures? You know, things like that. A lot of the time people are just kind of throwing out, oh, the research should suggest, but like they can't back that up, you know, so. I think it's very hard for people to know exactly like even like you know you can cherry pick information of like oh there's a paper on this but like is there actually robust evidence to support that claim you know compared to like one random paper so it's very hard for parents to kind of know these things and that's where that, that I always talk about evidence defeats doubt like yeah there, there's a difference isn't there in a conversation of I think this does that or I know this does that. So we know that creatine does X. 
we we think that Tonga Ali might do this. Like they're two very different conversations. Like there's one that's got robust evidence behind it where we actually know it helps with skeletal muscle mass, strength gains, hypertrophy. And then there's one that's new to the market. The research isn't quite there yet. So it's evidence defeats doubt and fact versus opinion. So I quite often challenge the boys where they say, I've been taking this and it like, this is class, like it helps me sleep. And I'm like, is, is that just your opinion that it helps you sleep or is there actual factual knowledge? Like there's evidence out there that actually is published that says that it helps with sleep or is it just your opinion that you think it's helping with your sleep? That's quite powerful as well. And we, and we challenge, even me, I challenge myself all the time in, in what I'm saying to the athletes and our, our department in evidence, have we got the evidence? Cause if we have that will defeat any kind of doubt that's in the organization and then make sure that what we're saying is factual rather than it just being my opinion. And, and a great example yeah. here is like, if somebody doesn't enjoy the food and they go, oh, no, dinner was crap. And you're like, what, the whole of dinner was crap? Think about dinner was crap. Every squad member think that dinner was crap or is that just your opinion? And in particular, what was crap about it? Oh, the mashed potatoes were dry. Okay, so the mashed potatoes were dry. How was the rest of dinner? Yeah, well, it was all right. And it's like, okay, so your statement there is actually pretty flawed because because you've now said that everyone in the building might think that dinner was crap it wasn't a crap dinner you just think that the mashed potato was dry but everything else was good and what's your preference compared to another person's preference then it's like yeah exactly exactly so quite often use that yeah no that's a really good way of kind of challenging how someone thinks another thing is well it kind of like leads on from that i think sometimes what athletes think is very important is like things like body fat percentage or I feel like athletes will often do things that they think is really kind of pushing them to be better like things like pushing to them, themselves to the point of burnout when actually you know they need to be focusing on other things that are actually evidence-based so like are there things in particular that you see among athletes where they're kind of you know focusing on things in particular versus like they should be actually focusing on rather than body fast focusing on fueling properly before and after the game like what are the other things that you commonly see yeah a drive uh, low body fat scores is always going to be in sport where i first kind of saw this was working england women's football like in particular the, the the focus actually was not about fueling and recovering from international football at the time unfortunately and it wasn't necessarily the players fault and I quite often reflect on this because they've come from a club where they don't have a nutritionist their knowledge of nutrition is then built upon parental knowledge and peer knowledge and social media influence and if that's the knowledge they've got then it could either be very good depending on what they do like fed of information or it could be terrible so when those girls were representing england at the time like the spread of their ability to understand what performance nutrition was 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 massive and and that wasn't necessarily their fault it was because they haven't been educated as to what the genuine evidence performance nutrition strategies are aligned with the uefa consensus state so we went on a process of getting them to understand the importance of nutrition for them to be the best England football player they could. And there's a great article from Alicia Russo recently where 
she actually came out, you know, publicly and said that she used to be that player that was so driven on body composition and fat mass and body fat percentage. Whereas actually now she understands that fuel for an international football game, she's got to eat loads of carbohydrates. And that's great because it allows her to be the best player she can. So there's, there's, there's definitely missing on education there for people trying to become as lean as possible. What we've started to bring in, and I first did this at England football, is, is a term functional mass in relation to body composition. So I very, very rarely now will I use the term fat mass, body fat percentage, you know, I'm going to skin fold you and not give you any more information. What we actually do now is we run a project called functional mass and functional mass is being able to support you to become the most functional player you possibly can in your position. Now, a goalkeeper would look very different to a hooker in rugby. A striker might look very different to a second row in rugby, but it's how can body composition be tweaked to make you the better player. So normally with a goalkeeper, yeah. Uh, ideally, we want to drop any unwanted weight that we don't need and we want to drive skeletal muscle mass up so that you can actually spring, you know, and, and save the goal in the top corner because fat doesn't fly, but muscle is able to produce force that allows somebody to jump. So functional mass at the moment for us is massive because we've done a great project at Bristol Bears where we do DEXA scans, we collect body composition, looking at asymmetry in our rugby players. Um, and what we're also able to detect is the more functional the player is, the better their body composition score is. So lo and behold, it makes sense to everyone that if you've got a low fat mass score and you've got a high muscle mass score, guess what? You can produce a lot of force. You can jump quite high. You can sprint quite quickly and your fitness is pretty good because you've got unwanted mass that you're not carrying and you've got a lot of functional mass, i.e. skeletal muscle tissue. So that's where I would encourage nutritionists in sport to reframe that whole body composition collection and assessment. Get away from just pinching eight sites and then telling someone they're 75. Try and align it with a performance metric where you can so that they've got something a little bit more tangible to work towards. Um, and that's where we've seen great success. Yeah, I think be sensitive around the wording that you use. It's like so huge with athletes. And like, I would say as well, athletes are so much more likely to, you know, have disordered eating or eating disorders. And like, I'd love to know, is that something that you see a lot um, in rugby? Yeah, I I often reflect on myself. I wonder whether I have disordered eating patterns myself as a nutritionist. Um, never manifested into an eating disorder, but... Yeah, you see it quite often. You know, we have players that under fuel, they don't eat enough because they're worried about putting mass on. And, and it's like that education piece to say to them, if actually we fuel and recover training properly and we fuel for the work required, we're aligning nutrition with our training demands and total energy expenditure each day. You're eating the correct amount of protein and we're consuming creatine every day guess what? You might actually see the number on the scale go up. But the reality is that could be a gain of two kilos of skeletal muscle mass over a 10-week period. So do you want to become a more functional rugby player or is your sole driver as an athlete a number on a scale? Like, what is it that you're trying to be? I really try and educate the players to say, 
the body mass measurement is just a marker that we can kind of keep an eye on. But don't let the drive for a low body mass on a scale get in the way of you becoming a more functional player because I've got a lot of the female players that like are really scared of creatine and they don't want to take it because, yeah, but when I take it, like I'm heavier on the scale and I'm like, yeah, because it might hold on to a little bit of water weight, but also it might be because you're putting muscle mass on. And then if your scores in the gym are up because you're becoming stronger, you're squatting more, you're, you're able to produce more force on account of a jump. You're actually quicker. You can now run 10 meters or 40 meters quicker than you've ever run. Like you're scoring PBs. In my mind, I'm like, who cares what the number says? Like if you've gone from 71 to 72, you're now a more functional player. Don't be driven by that number. Yeah. I think it's very hard to actually get through to athletes like that sometimes. So, you know, it can be like an anxiety for athletes and just general, the general population for such a long time. So I feel like sometimes it's just like, how do you actually get that through to them? Because I, th- I feel like a lot of the time people can be very aware of that, where it's like they know that, you know, their performance is improving, but they're still in the back of their minds like, oh, I don't look like an athlete or I don't look lean or I don't have a, the six pack or whatever. So like, how do you kind of approach that with someone that's still kind of in that mindset where they're they're struggling, you know? Yeah, again, it's just education and Yes, you, you can become lean by fueling properly for a rugby game. Of course you can. It's a line in nutrition with the demands of the day. And you do that chronically over time and you improve body composition. Like boxers have shown us that for years. Physique athletes and bodybuilders have shown us that for years. So learning how to consume the right amount of energy for the right amount of expenditure that you're doing that day. And then you back that up seven days, one week, two weeks, two, three, four months in a row, you start to improve body composition. And and that gradual change in body composition is probably the thing that we should be going after rather than this acute drop in seven days. So it's literally education. And that's where I'm beginning to break through with the, the women's players now is them understanding body weight fluctuates every single day. And guess what? Depending what week you are of your men- your menstrual cycle, that's going to change. And actually like, yeah. you know, showing players that if I drink this 1.5 liters of fluids, guess what? I'm 1.5 kilo heavier on a scale. There's so many people that aren't aware of that. And there's so many people that take body mass measurements at different times of the day. There is actually probably the the most reliable method is first thing in the morning you wake up you go to the toilet and you step on the scale that's where your bladder is going to be empty you haven't eaten anything yet you haven't had a coffee yet that's where we're going to get a genuine measurement to know what your body mass is if you measure it on a monday at midday and then on a tuesday you measure it at nine o'clock at night of course it's going to be different and guess what it might be higher because you've had a full day of eating so even that alone, like getting that across to the girls to say, if you are conscious of what weight you are, then you need to measure your weight properly. It's like trying to do a resting heart rate when you've climbed up 10 flights of stairs. You just wouldn't do it because it, it's not resting. Yeah, it's funny. It's just, it's always the basics. Like you even see people in the gym weighing themselves and it's like, well, probably not the most accurate measure that you're getting, you know? So it's just, it's always, it just comes back to the basics, you know? I just also had um, a question from someone that asked on Instagram 
Do you find athletes more compliant to nutritional interventions in comparison to general population? Uh, yes and no. I think it, it depends on the athlete. Some are, some are very compliant because they, they buy into it and they realize that they could be a better player and, and they're like, they're, ha they're feeling it and they're seeing progress. Others in, in all sports that I've ever worked in just kind of cruise. You know, they're an elite football player. They're an elite rugby player. They've done it without really buying into nutrition. And I'm just going to crack on as I am. And we had a great discussion in our community the other day with Dr. Dan Martin around whether to go after those players or not, or whether to just focus on the boys or the girls that want to buy into your nutrition strategies, develop them very well, and let that be the evidence to the others that, yeah. by the way, if you buy into it, this is the change you can have. And it's probably the same in the general population. I'd, I'd say with the players, there's a little bit more pressure on it because they do have to represent a jersey. You know, I think the certainly all sports actually now with the influx of S&C, gym getting better, facilities getting better, the WSL, like English women's football, like clubs now are investing in nutritionists. So players are getting fitter. Players are getting stronger. And we see that at a Rugby World Cup. Like for some of these forwards... To play 80 minutes, the physicality that they do is incredible. And the reality is, I, I just think if you don't buy into nutrition, you're going to get left behind and you'll get, you'll get these players that rise to the top. And, and I've seen it myself with my own eyes at the clubs that I've worked with. The motivation for the, the general pot, it almost reminds me of like a, an ECG scan because you get like this intense period where someone wants to get better. They might have the, like the marathon coming up. They might someone might have died close to them so they're doing a charity event and they want to get fit for it they might have a holiday into marbella coming up in eight weeks time so they dial in for eight weeks and you get these like peak periods in people's 12 months and then it kind of falls off the wagon but the the thing that i really try and get across is not having these intense periods where you buy into it and you fall off it's why don't we just improve your lifestyle improve your education improve your habits so that you don't have intense periods, you're actually gradually just improving that's now sustained. And that's probably the, the approach I have with the general pop. Yeah, it's funny how similar general population athletes are. I think sometimes people think it's like you reinvent the wheel for athletes, but it's it's literally the same thing. Yeah, it is. Um, and then um, just to finish up, I'd love to know what are some words that you live by or a life that you live by? My dad used to always say, uh, like Nike had one of the best kind of logos and, and mottos, and that was just, just do it. So certain decisions that I've made over the last couple of years of my life, you know, I, I, I just do it and it's a calculated, just do it. But sometimes you, you jump and the net will catch you and, and the net will always be there if, if you're making kind of calculated assessments of a situation. So I think that's really, really important for me and kind of my life at the moment. Um, and then, yeah, I would say, you know, evidence defeats doubt, fact versus opinion. These are all things that kind of worked very well for me. And then I'll, I have got a quote that I'm just trying to pull up now. And it's, it's to do with like opinions, because in nutrition, everybody on planet earth as a human will eat. Like we have to, we're the only mammal that can actually cook our food. 
every other mammal on planet earth kind of eats it raw, rips it up, but we actually have got the ability to cook right with that. Everybody has an opinion of food, which rightly so like everyone's allowed it, but that's where it's really difficult for us to just distill what's right and what's wrong or what's evidence-based. But I heard some quotes off the high performance recently, and it was the ability to observe without evaluating is the highest form of intelligence. And then the second one is opinion is the lowest form of knowledge because it requires no empathy or no understanding. The highest point of knowledge is empathy as you have to suspend your ego to enter someone else's world to understand their perspective. And with that, I quite often put myself in the position of players where I'm like, like, why isn't he buying into that? Like, what is it that he's not quite getting? Like trying to look at it from their angle in that third person in that conversation. Like, what is it that he's not quite getting that allows him to buy into it yet? And suspending my ego, it's really easy for me to say, like, just do it. Just all you got to do is drink this. But there's obviously a reason why they're not buying into it yet. So understanding that I think is really crucial. So, yeah, I'd probably say just do it. And then those quotes for me right now. Yeah, that's amazing. There's so much value in that. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you, where can we best find you? Yeah, awesome. So probably Instagram. I'm active on there. More Hemp Performance. LinkedIn. Uh, anyone that wants to kind of connect that, please do reach out. Um, always happy to help others out. And then I, I guess kind of selfishly, one thing that I'm driving at the moment is the Performance Nutrition Network. And this is a place where we've now got over a hundred practitioners from all over the world, uh, nutritionists, dietitians, and athlete support personnel. And we're all in there really for one thing, and that's to be a community together and to share, to share knowledge, to share resources, to share experience and to help each other out. Um, and so if anyone is keen on joining the community, then then please check that out, the Performance Nutrition Network. You'll find it on my socials. And it's yeah, it's really quite an inspiring place to be at the moment. Um, we've got people that are achieving job roles through the community. They're achieving PhDs in applied sport through the community. And, and actually practitioners that are offering work out to other people because they've got so much on their self. Yeah, really cool place to be right now. So check that out. Amazing, James. Thank you so much for coming to the pause. I'm just delighted to have you on. No worries. All good. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much.